Hi all, I welcome you to the Building Culture podcast where I invite incredibly smart people who build things. Whether they be engineers, entrepreneurs, programmers, hobbyists or researchers, it does not matter. As long as you're someone who's passionate about building things, I'll find you and podcast you. Hi all, I want to take a brief moment to thank you all personally for supporting this podcast on YouTube and on all major podcast platforms, including Google Podcasts and Spotify. The podcast mainly features interesting people in robotics, artificial intelligence and entrepreneurship. If you believe that the information that I'm providing might be of benefit to you or to someone you know, it would be really great if you could hit the subscribe button. and press the notification icon so that you can get notified on time whenever the next part is out it would literally take you a second or two to subscribe to the podcast but it would really mean a lot to me because i can grow the podcast to a level that where i can reach more people invite ever more interesting guests and have a more meaningful impact so let's begin now and yeah i mean uh, uh, auto ml is uh, quite interesting because uh, you don't really need to have any programming experience of course you mentioned that you you teach the foundation which is essential uh, but at the same time like i mean as the, the ai field would be progressing i think already machine learning is i think maybe correct me if i'm wrong it it's less programming intensive compared to you know the, the making the rules like programming everything on your own because the features and everything the network you know uh, predicts uh, uh, for you so already the programming the level of programming is decreasing uh, as you know machine learning and auto ml all these things are coming so uh, do you think like uh, programming uh, would not be as essential for machine learning uh, in the future or uh, and and just you know experimentation and uh, empirical nature of it would be more important i don't i don't know uh, what are your views i don't think programming will go away completely you know uh, it's true that uh, there is there is structure and that's why deep learning became so popular uh, when it did was because now you don't really have to hand extract features you just pass in data it's end to end and it's it's getting the final job done uh, so it's it's end to end it's automatically figuring out the features and it's doing the classification for you uh, in the process that's why it became so popular so if you just have a framework you you know what what to change and then you know what comes out but there is also this thing of hyperparameterization and the same parameters will not scale for every single data set so uh, one example is uh, you'll see that for medical images uh, most of the time people use adam optimizer a lot and then uh, if you're using uh, you know autonomous drive rms prop or sgd or variants of of the adaptive methods have also shown to be pretty you know useful so then how do you know if 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 i don't teach you what the differences are between these optimizers and if you're just scaling from one domain to the other then how would you know what to look for at least doing making sure that you've done a, a cv grid search so that you've found the best optimizer and you found the best learning rate but also you know teaching the core concepts that you know your your training and the validation uh, curves they should look very similar to one another otherwise you might be overfitting so how do you ensure your model is not overfit and it generalizes correct so 
understanding those core concepts that's not going to go away that they, that is super important but yes uh, i mean you may you may not need to code every single line because right now with the api and even you know with the tensorflow apis everything being exposed you just call on a tensorflow api you you maybe have one last uh, layer and you have a new model and a new classifier altogether you don't have to retrain everything from scratch anymore so those things are, are super important and that's i believe reducing the entry barrier for people to, to start getting you know into object detection computer vision deep learning um, so that's definitely there again with auto ml with the uh, with the graphical models it's very easy for you to see what's going on rather than write a code and you know, even aws azure they've done a very good job at, at automating these process but I still think there is very there is a huge amount of importance in the concepts in the underlying concepts. So understanding is if I have a deep learning framework, what are the different parameters? What are the changes that I should do in order to ensure that it's not an overfit model? Um, and, and, and knowing that it is fit to the best way possible to my current data set. So getting that, uh, at least you have the domain experience where you know, well, 94% is not good enough for MNIST. If I just say 94% accuracy, it might look like a big number, right? But 94% on MNIST data is nothing because there it's supposed to be 99.99 something accurate. <laughs> so how do you know what your benchmarks are if you haven't really uh, you know, applied it for the different data sets? So um, understanding the, the translation. So there should be a huge importance, which I give on benchmarking. Benchmark your methods to the existing works. And second is transfer learning in order to see what are the metrics, what are the parameters that you need to fine tune in order to ensure you have a good transference of knowledge from you know, one model to the other. Okay. And and uh, you mentioned that you know the choosing the optimizers, for example, Adam or RMS prop, that mm -hmm. would somehow depend also on the, the problem that you are facing and and the domain as well. So how does one uh, learn? Like for for a beginner, how does one know uh, which optimizer to choose? Is it it does just just come with experimentation yes. and experience, yes. or is there also yes. a science behind it that it, you know it, like conceptual understanding? There are conceptual understanding and that's what I'm saying it's just for a beginner you have to go through that process of understanding the concepts rather than uh, but again you can experiment and choosing it essentially choosing it for an application does one actually understand only by experimenting with these things and experience or can can a beginner also like okay I, I know that Adam would be more suitable for this uh, particular application for a particular uh, for for you know for a reason that is that he understands and not just that he experiments and knows. Yeah, like like I mentioned, like some domains or medical images have a higher preference for Adam, um, and that's because the the amount of data is very sparse in in medical domains. The amount of annotated data is sparse, so they're finding uh, an SGD gives you like a like a flat optimal uh, solution, but RMS prop or the mod or the uh, adaptive methods they generally give you, give you a sharper uh, you know optimal uh, spot. So that's why Adam is preferred more in the in the medical than in the other so of course there are some conceptual findings in the domain but maybe it's a new uh, medical image uh, I, i'm not sure if it's just a point cloud that you get out of x-rays an x-ray point cloud. i'm just making it up if there's a new um, you know modality comes what do you use in that case 
because there is no precursor to it, right? So in that case, you'll have to do some amount of experimentation. And there are ways to, to do that. So you just do a grid search CV, CV uh, and you, you know, apply all the different kind of optimizers to find the best learning rate and the alpha and the beta parameters. But you need to know what those parameters are, right? Otherwise, just doing a, doing one a blind search is, is not going to help. It just might take a lot of compute and not land you anywhere. So yeah, that's what I'm saying. So some amount of coding is always going to be relevant. Uh, but not maybe everything from, from scratch like it was before, where you're hand in engineering features and all the parameters for your yourself. For sure, for sure. Yeah, and uh, so another thing is that uh, uh, for someone uh, who is beginning with machine learning, for example, uh, one major challenge would be people get intimidated intimidated by the mathematics behind it. I mean, you must have had this question from a lot of people as well. So uh, do you think like understanding the mathematics deeply is understanding uh, important even for an applied engineer? Or do you think like only if you are in going into research PhD and you know, trying to find your own algorithm in at a later stage, only then it's important? Like what level uh, of mathematics and uh, depth, uh, what depth of understanding is required for an applied AI? Yeah. And, and I get that question a lot. And uh, even before for our, our curriculum, when, when, when I teach in, at, at Fourth Rain, I always, uh, maybe I, I'll explain what, what the you know, background are. It's, it's good for you to know what it is, but not in, in very high depth because it's pointless for me to ask someone that go and, and code the best format of SVM. Because maybe even if you do code your, your, your best format of SVM, it's never it's probably not going to be as optimized as the auto um, or as the sklearn you know inbuilt library is. So on the job, you're you'll automatically default to the random forest or for the SVM that's already coded in your uh, sklearn. So then, what was your learning about? And all of these 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 concepts this. It's all. It's about regular practice. You know, it's only practice make it perfect. So if you don't do it for six months, you'll forget. And after that, again, you'll have to go back. So it doesn't make sense. So if you are going in an applied role where you know that you're, you'll be working with MLOps more and you'll be doing more software engineering, then no, those concepts, knowing the concepts is good, but going into depth for the formulations is not that relevant because you'll not use it for six months. You'll forget it anyway. Uh, but yes, uh, of course, knowing because like for SVM, knowing that there is a primal and dual and then there you, you're solving for the dual and that's, you know, the, the less complex version, understanding what the hinge loss is or what the different kind of loss functions are. Those are important and you should know them. But again, understand, would anybody ask you to derive the, the dual from the primal? Probably not. Um, so that's not. What, what your end goal is so and and even in your initial calls you should focus and, and talk about your your strengths on deployment or on your strengths on software engineering or engineering the mlops parts more rather than getting to your strengths so focusing and, and you know in improving your implementation skills would be the most important and you know if if you can actually understand like uh, what are the parameters? How? What are the you know values of the parameters that I should be setting? What are the optimizers and what is the learning rate and all these things that you should be using? Even though you might not really fully know the depth of it, uh, of course, some level is important as absolutely. Well. And and it depends what what level you are at. So if you're a PhD student, then then you have no excuse. You have to learn it. Yeah. To learn. <laughs> right. But then if you're not, if you're if you're a beginner, if it's after your undergraduate degree or if you're 
bring your masters. And of course, the depth is, is different. And in, people in the industry understand that. Uh, it's not uh, your, your requirements for a research scientist role is different from a, from a deep learning engineer. Like when I joined uh, the, my, my industry, I, I joined in as a deep learning engineer. I was not a research scientist. So my job was not to you know, publish papers. It was to make patents and it, it was to make uh, you know, system, so system softwares, uh, understand the system design, uh, make iterative rollout plans. Um, so all of that. Um, so yeah, it, it's totally dependent on what kind of job you're interested in. If you're getting into a research scientist role, then yes, all of that you have to know as much detail as possible. But if it's a you know, ML engineer, then you know, having a higher weightage as to you understand the concepts, but you might not need to actually derive them by, by hand. That's not what's asked for me. Yeah. So, but do you think that it's like, uh, it, it's essential to do a PhD in these emerging fields like robotics, AI, because they are like progressing at such a fast pace that you have to stay in touch with the new things that are coming? Or do you think like uh, you can, if you, if you, if someone is not inclined towards research, then he wouldn't go for a PhD, but he has to be aware of the research that is going on. So how does he catch up with that if he is not going to do a PhD? Absolutely. And that, that's again, another question that, that I, that I get a lot. And, um, you know, OpenAI gym. So right now, the entry barrier has been reduced by a huge margin from what it was five years back. And that's just because of we have all of these. There is Colab, you know, there is uh, this OpenAI gyms that gyms yeah. that you know, code up your, your systems and, and, and see what the final outcomes are. So the entry uh, barrier is much lower now. But keep be, staying updated is, is super important. So if anybody is, you know, dabbling in this uh, area, then I would say follow what other people are, are publishing in, in, in LinkedIn and, and see if some of the, if, if it is in follow in this, in this, in your same area of interest or not. Also following some of the conference, like the core conference, like ICLR, ICPR, um, then there's CVPR, Veteran Pattern Recognition, or, uh, you know, if it's ICML. So following NIPS, following the publications, what is going on there, there you can just go in and search for some of the keywords and you'll find uh, most of the relevant papers in those cases. And uh, going to the GitHub links, looking at the code, can you understand it? Can you utilize it? So uh, staying up to date with the, the latest and the greatest in publication in the research field is, is super important. So you don't need to, the only thing PhD teaches you to do is be disciplined about learning. And if you can get that discipline about learning on your own, or at least have a smaller version of that discipline about learning, then, you know, by, by all means, I don't see why that should be a hindrance. Okay, okay. So PhD doesn't have to be an essential thing, even if you, even if you want to grow in, in this particular field, but you want to stay in industries. You mentioned that you can follow conferences and, you know, other yep. resources that are available, research papers. And absolutely, stuff. absolutely. And I have seen so many PhD students who finish their PhD and then they don't use that, use their degree anymore. Like I've seen a lot of chemies, chemical engineers, I've seen a lot of astrophysicists who don't work on astrophysics anymore, but they've gotten into AI and ML. Uh, same for chemical engineering, and now they are data scientists or software engineers. Um, so, oh, wow. yeah, so, and that yeah. happens. Even that after happens. PhD, like uh, people change their field. <laughs> and it's just, you know, entry barrier uh, is, is much lower. That's what I'm saying. So, PhD generally, it teaches you the discipline of how to learn, how to, you know, quickly adapt to a new domain. And so that's the reason why a lot of companies want PhD. That means, you know, this person is going to be disciplined. They know how to deliver. 
rather than being flaky and saying because uh, and I've seen this 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 more of an attitude shift I would say it's not a problem it's just an attitude shift uh, the amount of days that um, and again I'm generalizing here the amount of days that I'd see uh, someone who's fresh out of uh, grad school after an undergraduate degree for them to say this doesn't work is is probably less than half <laughs> than what it takes a PhD student they'll just keep at it no let me come back to it let me come back to it until you know you've made enough progress and sometimes that's just the answer uh, you know it doesn't work which is fine to, to say that but you need to have exhausted all of your options to say that this doesn't work for my use case so it's just you shouldn't give up <laughs> that's what I'm uh, I'm trying to say is uh, um, you know knowing when to not give up and knowing when to keep going that's something that you know so that's the instead that's what's the PhD instills or drills into you but then if you know that that's the case, you know that you've got to keep at it, then just keep at it. <laughs> you just need to follow the right ways uh, to keep current, I believe, after that. Yeah, that, that's actually a very interesting take. And I think uh, a lot of the viewers could also gain uh, uh, from your perspective as well. So uh, you mentioned that a PhD does not necessarily mean that you have to, you're stuck in this particular field because you you spent so long in that particular area. But it, uh, why a PhD is valued is because it gives you the work ethic, you know, the, you de develop traits like uh, perseverance mm -hmm. and not mm -hmm. giving up and going through the process. So, yeah. so that's, I think, uh, I mean, even I uh, used to think that PhD means that you are in that field for long and I mean you are uh, an expert in that particular domain so you would want to you know continue in that particular area but it's possible to shift even after a PhD. Very much, very much and and a lot of industries understand that a lot of com companies actually value that they, they understand that so even though if somebody might be a chemi background but you still have showed that you've done enough work in data science you might get hired as a data scientist at Facebook or some other fan company. So there's no reason why that, that shouldn't happen. I know a lot of people who've gone through that process. So uh, it's not that once you've done a PhD in, so uh, I mean, if you have a PhD in data science and well, there's no PhD in data science, but if you have a specialization in the data science and then uh, you know getting a job thereafter, but then if you have a PhD in something completely unrelated like astrophysics, uh, but then you have enough project evidence to show that you can get hired into a you know, a big company to do data science or software engineering, then companies don't don't stop you then there. And you'll always see that even the job requirements will be like electrical engineering or or related STEM field. That's it. That's the degree that you require. And why are the requirements there? That just shows you at what entry point. So, yeah. Uh... So there are two uh, aspects of this, right? So one is that, you know, once you do a PhD and you want to transition into a field like AI in, and go into the industry, it's definitely possible and PhD shows your work ethic. And, and then another aspect would be that, uh, you know, the, someone who is in the industry, maybe he is in uh, AI for or, or a different industry, but he is working in the industry. He's doing the technical stuff, implementation stuff, but he wants to now switch into uh, uh, you know more core research and understanding the uh, uh, the in-depth topics now i think uh, another uh, thing that i've heard at least from uh, the people who i talk to here in germany is that you know uh, if you want to do a phd better do it after your masters because after you have some experience maybe 3 or 4 years in an industry it becomes harder to get a phd because you know phd uh, requires a different level of uh, understanding a more in-depth understanding which you probably uh, 
lose or you you are not in touch with that side i don't know what what do you think about that how true is that and well in europe i think uh, the, 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 option, the option of having an industrial phd is amazing yeah that's uh, another thing so yeah. because that's not there in us and the fact that europe has it i think that's and i've been uh, an uh, you know industrial advisor for several masters thesis and phd students back in Sweden uh, with Chalmers University. So um, the yeah. fact that you have that as a possibility uh, is, is great. And, and after your master's, all you need to do is apply. So I, I agree that once you finish your master's, maybe three, four years has gone too much. But mm. in a few years, if you can make up your mind, if that's what you want to go, then talk to your manager. And uh, if your company doesn't support it, then just apply because, you know, again, it's, it's a country, right? Yeah. They will, they're going to sponsor you. So that sponsorship might lead you to another company that might become your industrial sponsor. So okay. taking a break for three, four years is not, uh, you, you're right, it, it's not typical for mm. for getting back from industry to, to PhD. But uh, generally, if you wait that, that long, you're ready to go to the next level, like management or something like that. So mm. typically mm. people would do an MBA after that rather than getting into the, the PhD route. But yeah, yeah, masters within a few years figure out if you, if you want to do a PhD or not, and then maybe an industrial PhD is the best, best route in that case. Yeah. Okay. I, I wasn't also aware that it, the, the, an industrial PhD is like not offered in US. So it's not. Like... Yeah. In US, uh, PhDs is only academic. So there is no such format where you can work for a company and, you know, and because that it, it makes sense because if you're working for a for-profit company, most of whatever you're producing is not becoming papers, it's becoming patents. So it's not something that you can share with the domain and it's not in, in increasing your body of work. So that's the reason why things are kept at academic level so that you can show it all and, and, and you know, showcase all of that. All of that becomes the body of, of your work rather than saying, okay, this 70% you can't show because it becomes now a comp company's company secret, secret and only 10 or 20% you can show. Yeah. yeah. So, so pros and cons to both, but um, yeah, I think that's a, that's a great uh, option. option for people, for people in Europe. Yeah, so so better to do better to decide early is is what uh, the takeaway would be from this, and another thing is that I mean also the difference between uh, a PhD in US and Europe is that I think in in US uh, it's I think six years right is uh, how it how much it how typically, long it takes typically typically yes. right typically yes but in in Europe and you know in uh, uh, around. Yeah, it, three to four years. So ideally in Germany, I think they give a contract for three years. Of course, it, it, it gets maybe extended one or two years after that. Yeah. It's a body of work, I would say. So every, every, every lab, every research lab has a separate requirement. Like yeah. our research lab, when I was doing my PhD, the requirement was five journals. You have to have five journals and then you graduate. So till and until you have five journals. So when do you have five journals? Maybe in three years, maybe four years, maybe six years, you don't know. Uh, yeah. But you have to have five journals so that you can uh, graduate. So generally it is those by those requirements, what's the minimum requirement, and then uh, you go out. And it totally depends on the domain as well. Like electrical engineering, I know they're still large on journals, but computer science uh, domains, because the conferences have become so highly reputed and the and the review cycle is so short, then uh, that a lot of computer science divisions, they say, okay, a few NIPs and ICLR or, uh, you know, uh, ICML papers are, are good enough. Um, mm. So the requirements are very different based off of domain location and research lab, I would say. So figuring that out, inquiring that, 
when you're doing your due diligence into if you're mm-hmm. looking for it if you want to do a phd with whom should, should you do a phd because in us you have to get, get a statement of purpose sop where you have to mention who are the likely professors you want to work with so reaching yes. out and asking them early on is you know what are the phd requirements you know how long and these are questions you can definitely ask mm-hmm. that's doing your due diligence before you okay okay yeah and so, uh, so you have like uh, you you've done your phd and you're you're into research and you you've also been teaching and before that like how you started you were in the uh, in the applied ai side of things and actually just engineering work basically yeah. so how do you think you have evolved over the past several years you know from your first association with ai to now where you are how have you evolved like your personal uh, evolution I so and it it's been a huge change of course over the past mm-hmm. 12 years that's the cycle you're talking about um initially it was more about just you know getting things out so finishing a project and writing a paper are two different things mm-hmm. <laughs> even in my masters i believe i i finished the project that was assigned to me in one year but i spent another year doing the an- the analytical work why does it work where does uh-huh. it fail how do you know in, in order mm. to address the the risk mitigation in order to you know why is it failing here what can i do in order to ensure that it it doesn't fail so getting mm. a project up and running is maybe 3 4 months maximum 6 months and you say okay i'm done mm. but that's what the evolution means is your attention to detail then increases many many uh, many many, okay. many. Mm-hmm. as a phd student it was okay why is it failing how do i explain it like even in my in my phd in my first year i was i was uh, you know doing a diabetic retinopathy detection using retinal images i was done with it in one year then i spent mm-hmm. three more years after that just explaining why it works and where it doesn't work oh, <laughs> so <wow. laughs> it's the analytical part that takes a huge amount of time explaining it and and going mm-hmm. attention to detail and when i was a professor that's the same thing i was doing is uh, why does it work why does it not work and it's the attention to detail that just so now when i look at a problem i know what category it, it belongs to i have an uh, idea as to what class of uh, models to apply it to what sort of hyperparameters it's supposed to go to and that's what experience is mm. is you've mm. seen enough um, so that you know how to move from one box to the other and, and to the other you will hear the term out of the box what does that really mean that you've applied for maybe one realm but now mm. i know medical imaging that uh, applies to other other fields computer vision that applies to other fields e-commerce online shopping data science uh, i worked on that extensively as well so now i know mm. when i look at a data set what should i do how should i go about pre-processing because in industry out of the 100% of of resources or the time allocated 60 or 70% will just be pre-processing you'll be cleaning the data you'll be understanding how much samples you require you will be working on getting well annotated data pre-processing it yeah. and then modeling and scripting is pretty short amount of time it's yeah. testing and integration right after mm-hmm. so understanding the whole life cycle mm-hmm. more the experience more you do more analytical you get you understand the pitfalls and you start anticipating that early on Mm-hmm. So what what would you become when you're a senior data scientist or a senior machine learning engineer is can you anticipate the pitfalls before you even started or said or saying this is how much how much resources i need because this is how much i'm going to need in the first two weeks and the next two weeks and the next two weeks and so on and so forth so understanding resource allocation or understanding the pitfalls or the limiting conditions beforehand mm-hmm. that's what uh, is the experience that you build over time 
Yeah, that's quite interesting. Another thing that you mentioned is about how a major portion of a machine learning project is data cleaning and doing the stuff that is not interesting. And I think this is also a misconception with people who are starting is that, you know, I would be training lots of models and that's all I would be doing. Uh, but you you probably don't spend a lot of time, like probably just 10, 20% of the time, right? So uh, do you get questions related to this as well uh, about what kind of work to expect, uh, they, can, they could expect to do like working uh, really. in artificial intelligence? I think... People have been reaching out to me just to get the internship and after they've gotten the internship, <laughs> they've taken off. <laughs> but, okay. and, and I'm happy to help in, in, in whatever way I can. But uh, yeah. yeah, it's it's an expectation. Man. So when I teach in, in my class, uh, that's what I, I, I said. The expectation very straight is uh, mm. if you're designing an experiment, most likely you will have to you know design it, collect your data, clean it, understanding what is a good experiment, what's not, what is good data, what's mm. not. Uh, waiting for you know well annotated data well structured data to mm-hmm. come back and then modeling is just maybe you'll do one week out of a 10 week inter- internship yeah do you think that this uh, do you think like giving giving the students uh, how the, the amount of work that they would be doing on data cleaning and just you know telling them upfront this is the kind of work that you would be doing might discourage them from going into ml because uh, that the data cleaning part is uh, i think a lot of uh, it is just boring work right it's not that glamorous yeah <laughs> I, I agree it's, it's not that it's not that glamorous but it's mm-hmm. it's real life i mean movies look so awesome right but making yeah. them there's so much good that goes into them and that's the case for, for everything and that's real True. life so uh, once you know what to do and then after that you're getting the experience of how to collect the data and, and, and everything. So mm-hmm. I think one of the core interview questions that I've also seen change over time, you know, as I've evolved over my career as well is once I was interviewing more for the senior, senior level roles, uh, it was yeah. that was what was the, the question is, how would you strategize resources for, for a particular project? Because that's oh, what they okay. were expecting to hear is how much time are you allocating? How are you? thinking of the pitfalls mm. um, and seeing if you have done, if you have taken ownership of a project and done that over time, uh, rather than just learning how to model. <laughs> yeah, that, that's quite interesting. So another uh, thing that I want to ask you is uh, a, a bit uh, more general towards artificial intelligence as a field. So you have been associated with artificial intelligence for, uh, like you mentioned, 12 years. And in the beginning phases of your involvement, SVMs were the real uh, thing that were, were, you know, popular and everyone was talking about that. And now is the time where deep learning is something that is uh, the trending, so to say. So how has artificial intelligence as a, as a field evolved over the years? Uh, I think it's always a catch up between hardware and software, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, generally, whenever there's a new, new new area, hardware and software always does not evolve at the same time. So neural networks, the concept was pretty well known, but around about 2007-2008, it was it had almost reached saturation. And mm-hmm. why deep learning became so popular after that because hardware stepped up. All mm-hmm. of a sudden, you can have so much compute available at such an easy base. And that's where software boomed after that. So it's, it's always yeah. a constant play between, and then there was a time when supercomputers put a reality right now, 
who cares about mm. supercomputers? You have AWS <laughs> and you have all of these cloud platforms. You don't care about that anymore. Yeah. So, you know, then it, it was IoT and it was the Internet of Things and, and big data mm. became important after that. And now uh, deep learning is, is still, um, you know, I would say it's, it's decently important. Uh, even right now. So it's always hardware and software. Uh, then you think about, you know, quantum, people are talking about quantum. Um, quantum computers, again, hardware is, is, is mm. you know, people are waiting for hardware to catch up because software, you've already done a lot of simulations. So it's always hardware and software playing catch up with one another. Um, wow, that's uh, an interesting way to put it. Yeah, absolutely. Even for blockchain, you see, you see, it, mm. it came, so, you know, some companies give a lot of importance, some companies didn't. So mm. it, it's always how much resources you have available to you. And if that's makes sense, um, you know, uh, right now or not. And so it's, it, it's, it's a cycle. It's a constant. Sometimes hardware will, will pace up based off of that software will again, you know, pace up. And then it, it's always uh, these cycles that, that keep keep going. So that's why following what's what's recent and following latest trends on you know, news articles as well as following latest research is the best way to keep updated on you know, what's the trend right now. Okay, interesting. So and also now, now uh, the applications in which uh, we see applications of artificial intelligence have also been increasing over the years. Maybe initially there were just a handful of fields where uh, these algorithms could be implemented now this has been growing exponentially so what are the uh, emerging areas in artificial intelligence that people should be watching out uh, for and uh, maybe planning their career so that they can you know hone their skills and go in that particular direction well i always say that there are four subfields right so you start with supervised learning where you have x and you know you have the data and you have label then you have unsupervised learning mm -hmm. where you're just trying to learn what are the clustering patterns underlying. Um, mm. Then there is so semi-supervised learning. Semi-supervised learning, it's, it's also used for in information storage and retrieval. It's used for metadata tagging. And mm. that is also pretty relevant and it's, it's coming up, I would say. It's, it's not that well researched, like zero-shot learning or, or you know, few-shot, mm. the ideas of few-shot, zero-shot. They're not that well researched, but they're definitely up and coming. Um, then, of course, uh, then there is reinforcement learning where, you know, it's, it's how do you train a robot? It's more human way of, of learning through feedback, correct? So um, yeah. these are the four major categories. Then in supervised learning, deep learning is a subset of that mm -hmm. uh, where, you know, you, you want to do a certain kind of a task. So it's putting a bounding box or if it's semantic segmentation. So you, you choose your task and you work in that particular direction. So, and, and again, if you say applied machine learning now, typically it, it talks about two, two branches. One is the NLP, so the natural language processing. Mm. It's a separate, completely separate set of rules, completely separate way of working around it, more sequence mm. models, uh, you know, uh, rather than, uh, you know, object detection sort of uh, models. And then there's computer vision realm where it's in the autonomous drive domain. So mm. think about recommended, recommendation systems versus, um, you know, language models versus vision models. And mm. uh, in the core signal processing domain, you know, voice is one-dimensional, one language is one-dimensional data, but, you know, image is, is just 2D signal. But when you look at the models, it's not that straightforward a classification. So you can start with something which is as simple as a signal processing algorithm that works on both, but then the subclasses, uh, it depends on what you're interested in. Like for, for me, mm. I'm super interested in vision because I can see what's happening underlying, you know, visually. Yeah. And that's very appealing to me. So hmm. computer vision is my niche. That is my domain. 
but then there are a lot of people who've spent years in NLP and that's what they're interested in. That's what they like, mm. the language-to-language translation. Um, so it totally depends on what your interests are. And like I mentioned, so okay. if you don't know where, what you're interested in, try the leave one out. So uh, <laughs> doing something, if it doesn't appeal to you, you know, try something else. So try, trying the different, uh, you know, domains and understanding where your interest lies. Basic concepts you should know. Everybody should know, um, you know, uh, starting up and then figuring out what appeals to you more so that you go more into that direction. How important do you think uh, education uh, specific to artificial intelligence is for the future? Uh, because uh, so, so talking about programming now, I think programming is being included in lots of schools and people are being taught that from a very young age as well. So uh, programming is something that is considered to, you know, increase uh, to hone the logical thinking ability of children as well and has like lots of applications, real world applications as well. So do you think like artificial intelligence is something that uh, everyone should be learning or, you know, it should be, uh, it should still be a specified, a specialized uh, thing that only a handful of people should be learning? That's a deep question. (laughs) (laughs) On a philosophical level, um, well, I, I definitely see that some people have naturally a knack for it more than than the other like math it's like asking do you like math some mm-hmm. people automatically they say yes and then some people say well we hate math so yeah. if somebody yes. says and if, if it's that kind of a polarizing effect um ai the concepts and baseline concepts of, of ai machine learning i i definitely believe that they can help everybody do their job mm-hmm. a little bit better because automation you know even if it's copy paste writing a short yeah. script that'll do that for you if, if all your job entails is to do copy paste copy paste all day if you can mm-hmm. just make a short script around it it'll free up so much time to go hang out with your friends and have coffee i guess while your yeah. com- computer does mm-hmm. that so uh very automation what, what you're asking is automation automation can definitely help almost everyone i, I don't mm-hmm. see any reason why it should of course it has to be like around software or Hardware, you mm. need to know how to communicate in that way. So that's why I believe all undergraduate programs in the U.S., they have this capstone program. So even in order to get an undergraduate degree, mm. you do this capstone project, which is very applied. You apply all of the concepts you've learned to, to actually you know, deliver a practical outcome. Mm. Um, so those are significantly important so that you know how to apply yourself. Is it relevant for everybody? I don't think so. So I still believe it should be a specialized topic that people who are only interested in it should take. Mm. Uh, The entry barrier to it should be lesser. So everybody should know what it is. But Mm. because getting into into detail, it might not be interesting to everyone. Uh, So there might be a lot of domain experts who, and and I can give you an example. So let's say right now we are working into into getting up a better vaccine let's say. So you're working with core researchers who only understand the biological factors. Would they Mm. want to learn coding? Maybe not. So they would probably Mm. want to work with an AutoML solution that they put in their data and they know what the outcome is. So for them, just understanding end-to-end is is, is more important. Mm. So so what I'm trying to say is everybody should know what AI can do and how they can maybe enrich or make their work easier mm. um, by using the concepts but getting into depth should be specialized for a few people who are interested okay okay 
so so yeah i mean everyone what you say is everyone should have a, a fundamental understanding of what artificial intelligence is and not be fooled by the you know movies that we have which portray it in the wrong way uh, but you know for specialization definitely i mean you have to follow a specific path and go deeper in the learning journey so uh, talking about artificial intelligence education let's finally get to fourth brain what is fourth brain what is the origin of the name and what is the vision of the company so fourth brain uh, how we we envisioned is this would be a, a curriculum we are we're putting together a curriculum so that you can go back uh, upskill yourself and then go back to the industry and you can do that as a beginner you should be able to do that as you have some mid level experience and then maybe you have you have one to two year worse years of experience and then you know you do this program you get very very much hands on experience and then you you know transition into a mle mle role so you role in the field so right now we are working uh, so the curriculum we've developed is for the last piece so you your entry point is you already have one to two years of hands on experience and then you're translating into your um, the specialization which is machine learning engineering so we learn uh, everything from supervised unsupervised semi supervised deep learning gans uh, lstm mm. time series uh, applied to neural networks uh, and then uh, we actually have a capstone project at the end of it so we have four four weeks of capstone project after that where we learn about all the ml ops auto ml deployments so it's it's we have mm. a focus around machine learning not just the models but around machine learning deployment at scale in production okay. environments mm. so that's what we we are working on right now this current uh, cohort it ends february 20th and i think the next one is up on march 6th so okay. that's what we will keep running and uh, over time we will also be building the the other curriculum pieces uh, for mm. uh, people who are very new so maybe they are domain experts they they want as little coding as possible so more auto ml uh, mm. and then maybe some coding experience uh, so more specialization around the qa or testing sort of platforms Okay. And the name you asked, and and the name. So the fourth brain, uh, uh, when we had coined it, it was around. We were thinking the fourth revolution is AI, so that's why we are calling it the fourth brain. And I did some more mm. digging, and that's where we saw that uh, fourth brain is also called the gut brain. So the instinctive mm. brain, uh, or the instinctive, uh, you know, fight or flight, uh, the idea that we have. that's actually your fourth brain it's called the 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 fourth brain because evolutionary we have the the base uh, you know instincts and then we have the i think that the, the the limbic and the the final cortical yeah. uh, part of the brain that helps us think in the complex domains and the fourth mm. brain is is your gut brain which gives you your instincts so it's more honing your instincts so that you can very easily change domains thereafter and and upskill yourself knowing when you should upskill upskill yourself and when not um, that's what okay. we are working around wow that's interesting so also uh, so the main idea behind fourth brain is to make people ready for jobs in industries and and also the maybe the uh, instinctive or you know the gut part of learning also comes in that way as well like deciding the direction for example it, it could be yeah. uh, it could play a role in that a lot of people and again through my channel i know a lot of people ask me should i go into industry should i go back to academia how should i figure out if i if academia is for me or not and mm -hmm. these questions through the projects these uh, automatically you know and i work with the students uh, directly mm -hmm. uh, in order to help them guide through the whole process so it, it helps answer this over time okay awesome so uh, can you also walk us through like one of the 
courses like how it is structured in a sense because at the end uh, so for example take an artificial intelligence or machine learning course or computer vision course that you have so how is it structured because essentially at the end you uh, uh, mentioned that the person would also have a, a some level of clarity of uh, the direction that he wants to go in so how how does uh, uh, the, what's the process of learning involved right so the the key part that fourth brain is different is it's hybrid learning environment so during the week we have offline videos and blogs and content and homework as assignments that you work on and then there we have hmm. a one day live session again it's virtual right now and i think it's going to be virtual for the foreseeable future um yeah. so virtual sessions where you know people come together and that virtual session hmm. it's always today you are an mle at company xyz and this is the pro you know pro problem that your manager has brought you this is a data set that you have to work with do this xyz so that finally you can report back you know this model is better or that's better or these are your final findings and that's what we do over 10 weeks so we start from regression then we do work on um, you know uh, uh, classification so supervised learning then we do unsupervised we do semi supervised we get into deep learning we do object detection because my background is computer vision so we do object detection we do semantic segmentation then we do gans then we do lstm or sequence to sequence models and then the last four weeks is absolute project where you learn about the concepts of ml deployment so everything to do with um so you know but tf light understanding how tensorflow light works what are what are the rest api serves that you can have working with aws um uh, specifically then again we have pyspark hadoop Uh, you know, big data concepts. How to work with larger data sets. How to work with transfer learning, auto ML, and then finally we get an ML ops. Um, so by the time you finished week fifteen, you've learned everything and you've applied everything. And during the project decisions, because the projects, the students come up with their own ideas. So they're upvoting and then they're forming formation of the team. So every project team has like two to three people right now. Um, so because you're working together collaboratively, you can get more work done. And it's a lot of peer learning that you. unblock one another and you actually uh, you learn more from the process actually so it's it's that's why we were calling it like a holistic because you're not just learning the the concepts one day but also you're doing hmm. this hands on project uh, which is around deployment so final thing is not just saying okay i've done this and this is my slide show no hmm. final process process has to be okay this is anything deployed so let me call on this is my my website and let me upload a data and show you what the final outcome is so that's the piece will be the final deliverable so so uh, essentially the thing that is i think the most important to take away from uh, the course structure is that you also teach deployment which is probably uh, not taught in a lot of other courses as well so also as you mentioned like uh, it starts with several weeks of in depth theoretical understanding theoretical uh, discussions and then uh, there uh, is the project phase so uh, do we have one project or do we have like multiple projects that uh, students are working on yeah so the capstone is one when you when we say capstone capstone is something that project students work okay. together like this three people working mm-hmm. towards one project so that capstone is one but okay. at the end of it people actually get four uh, along with the capstone so five different project repos that you can have okay. because everything is structured around topics so mm-hmm. the the thing around the regression and uh, you know semi supervised learning and and supervised learning so that's one topic then deep mm-hmm. learning is another topic gan is another topic sequence to sequence models is another topic and then okay. your capstone becomes another topic so essentially by the end you have five repos but one well flushed out 
collaborative repo that you can also talk about in your job interview that you know I've done I, I've worked on a team project and these are the way we've done commits together and this is I know how to work on git you know so that's your working experience that you can directly show that I've worked on so actually providing people with real world experience that they can present to the employer and and so these projects that uh, uh, the students are given do they cover all of the concepts that are, are taught or just a few of the concepts so you mentioned like one project is on gans one project is on uh, svms or something well projects again we have industry sponsored projects that come from industrial partners from time to time as well and uh, oh, okay. they can be in in particular direction like uh, let's say you know one one of the projects that we have is on oct images and it's on uh, unsupervised learning so how do you learn features automatically uh, from an image okay. uh, so mm -hmm. you know that that, that could be a, 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 that's like the we get the application domain how the students mm -hmm. structure it over a period Hey guys, I really hope that you enjoyed this particular conversation and it helped you in some way, shape or form. If it did, make sure to hit the subscribe button and the notification icon or the bell icon so that you can get notified on time whenever the next part is out. Also, it would be really great if you could give me your feedback in the comments below. That would really help me improve. I'm uploading small clips of the long podcasts on a regular basis. on platforms like LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram so make sure to follow me on these platforms if you're someone who cannot take out time for the long episodes the podcasts are also available on all major podcast platforms including Spotify and Google Podcasts